0: Let's get on to today's discussion. Um, uh, we are in a series called Moving from What Is to What If. Let me start by telling you this. I, for as long as I can remember, have always wanted to be great. I'm not sure if it was a nature thing, if we just born in there, or if it's a nurture thing, if I was told I should be great. It seems to me that most of us, Want to be great. I don't think I'm alone in that desire. So I guess there's a nature component to it. We're born with it. But I'm pretty sure it was nurtured too. I, I can remember times in my life my parents, parents encouraging me to, to work harder, to try harder. Don't you want to be great? Try harder, work harder. And I think other times it was just because, you know, they love me. I mean, remember, this is my mother we're talking about, and she thinks that I am the twin of Ryan Gosling, if you remember. So <laughs> she's been telling me for a long time that I'm great. Um, and so I started thinking about that this week, you know, and when I did, all sorts of questions. Have you ever thought about being great? I mean, I don't, know, I don't know, am I the only one who wants to be great? Um, I started thinking about that this week. I've wanted to be great forever. And the first thought that came to mind is, you know, I'm getting up there in years now, uh, certainly, I hope I have a good amount of time left, but I guess if I was going to use golf nomenclature, you know, I've, I've reached the clubhouse now, and I'm somewhere on the back nine. Uh, I'm hoping I'm only on hole 10. But I'm out there, and I started to think to myself, well, I've always wanted to be great. Let's just have a frank discussion. Am I great? You see, that was the part where I was hoping to get <laughs> some, some participation. But uh, I think you answered my question, so we'll just move on in the talk. Uh, Because then that got me thinking, again, this is what happens when you spend too much time at Starbucks working on talks. Then I started thinking, well, I mean, am I great? I don't know. What does it mean to be great? Like, what does it mean? Like, I want to be great, but then I'm like, well, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to be great? And how am I ever going to achieve it if I don't know what it is? Which then got me thinking again, is it possible that I've spent a good portion of my life aiming at something, trying to achieve something that I don't even know what it is? Did I send myself, and then of course having passed it on to my kids, because I did to them what my mom did to me, don't you want to be great? Having sent them out on a pursuit of of greatness, uh, entered into, into a race in a sense where there's no defined finish line, like, okay, now I'm great or really even any directions. I mean, I want to be great, and I want them to be great, but as a reflect on it, I don't even know what it is I want. Now, what does any of this have to do with our series from what is to what if? I'll explain if you've been traveling with us over the last few weeks. Here's what we've discovered, that over and over again in the Scriptures, Jesus reveals a four-part pattern, if you will, a rhythm of God's provision of God breaking through into, into our lives and pouring in, situ, in situations of scarcity, pouring in abundance. You first see it in the feeding, the, the, the feeding of the miracle called the feeding of the 5,000. I've, I've explained this to you before. This is the only pre-resurrection miracle that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all very real men, a couple of whom walked with Jesus and detailed his, who he was and what happened in his life, two of which did research on it and recorded it, Right? And so they all said that that miracle was so foundational to who Jesus was, it's the only one they, all, the only one they all, all included. It was that important. And so you see that pattern introduced there, but then you see it over again and, and over and over in the Scriptures. Here's what we've seen. Jesus takes, in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, that the, the, there was a little boy there, and, and in the face of all of these thousands of people, he brought forward a, a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish, And Jesus took those things, and he blessed them, he broke them, and he gave them to the community, and the goal has been pretty simple. Mark said that the disciples, even after all of this, had still not learned the lesson of the loaves. And so what I want to do is start the year by learning the lessons of the loaves, figuring out how we can reorient the way we think and the way we live, so that we live out that four-part pattern of God's provision and blessing. Here's what we've seen so far. We've learned that we need to see what God has given us differently. We need to see who we are, who others are differently. We need to see the God' capacity in it. Not just what it is, but what it could be. We've also seen that, it, that with what we've been given, our time, our talents, our treasures, our relationships, that if we were to take them and offer, to, offer them to God to, in a sense, use a religious word, consecrate them, to set them apart for a different purpose, that God would would make them, in a sense, holy. He would make those things different, and He would use them for His uses and His purposes. Last week, we looked at how when Jesus breaks the bread, what does that mean in our lives? Well, it means that, that it's okay to lose, and that in the loss and the brokenness, God often unleashes blessing. This week, I would was thinking about the fact that Jesus broke the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. Let I me mean, think about it for a minute. Enter the story, right? We just get so used to it, we forget little pieces about it. This actually happened, right? Once his father, once Jesus' dad did this, once God intervened in the scarcity situation and released this abundance from a couple of loaves and a few fish to enough to, to enough that it was able to feed what theologians think. what you count the women and kids, was probably 20,000 people. Jesus takes what God has done, the provision for many, the provision for many, and he gives it to a few. And they are to distribute the abundance out to everyone. Think about that. The whole miracle, if you will, hinges on the disciples taking the abundance that they were given and distributing it out to all. Now hear me on this. God's provision, the unleashing of abundance in our lives, it stops, we break the rhythm, we stop the flow when we don't give. Right? If when we've been given, we don't give. If when we've been blessed, if we don't bless. Enter the story. You guys know we do communion here about once a month. We did it last week. And, and you know it takes a while. There's you know, somewhere around 200 folks in the room, 250 folks in the room, right? And, and it takes you know five, six, seven minutes to feed 250 people just a tiny little thing of, of juice and a, a small pre-portioned piece of bread. Enter the story. Imagine how long it took 12 disciples, 12 guys, to feed 20,000 people. Like this is like, you know, Madison Square Garden. There was no no, person on every aisle with a little bucket or something. This was unplanned. It had to have taken a little bit of time. And my guess was, as I entered the story, as those disciples walked around handing out the provision of God to people, did they have an inner desire for greatness too? Because if they did, my, my guess is they were wrestling with it. Here's, here's what I mean. I, I think, I, when I tried to define for myself this week in Starbucks, am I great and what does it mean to be great and how would, I, how would I know if I was great, I started trying to figure out how we measure greatness. And, you know, I know that we would all say that we don't do this because I know you're all spiritual and better than me. I know that. But people like me, sometimes we define greatness related to, as best as I could tell, three things. People's, people's net worths, right, their, 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 their possessions, uh, we, we, we base their greatness on what they have. We base it on their fame, right, their notoriety, how many people know of them. And, and we, um, we bless it on their fame, their worth, and their power, their authority. Wealth, power, fame. My guess is, as the disciples over all those hours, as they were being challenged by all three of those things, because at some point, their desire for personal greatness, if they had not won out over it, it very easily could have hindered, could have put an end to one of the great miracles of all time. They could have thought, you know, man, there's a lot of people on this hillside, and they're all hungry. It seems a little foolish to just give all this bread away. I mean, I... There's 11 guys over there. I could set up a little shop over here, you know, and what I could do is I could call it like center cut bread, and you know, this way, if you wanted the center cut bread, if you wanted the real soft piece of the bread, you come over to my stand, and I would give it to you for for a small amount of money, and I promise, I promise Jesus, I'll give some percentage of the money to to the, I'll give you 10%. Wouldn't that be great? You know, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that could have kind of entered into their mind as they were going around. I mean, They already had left everything they had to follow Jesus, so it means they didn't have much. I mean, heck, this guy's dragging them all over the Judean countryside. Maybe we just keep a little of this for us so we don't run into situations like this again, Jesus. My old boss, some of you know I I wasn't always a pastor. I I had a different job. I almost said a real job. That gets me in trouble all the time. Um, My old boss back in the finance days in in training class, he trained me and then I, 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 I was a trainer for a while. And so I used to give the talks to the finance group. And so my old boss said, you have to teach everybody the golden rule. Anybody know what the, the golden rule is? Anybody? No, no, no. See, you've been in church way too long. Uh, that's that's Jesus' golden rule. It was not the finance industry's golden rule. The golden rule, as I was taught it in the finance industry, is he who has the gold sets the rules. And they would tell us, hey, boys, that's you. You have the gold, you set the rules for how the game's going to be played, how the deal's going to get structured. And of course, lastly, with 20, I mean, I have the bread, I have the bread, and they want it. Of course, lastly, with 20,000 people around, my guess it would be that like 19,500 of them couldn't even have seen what Jesus had done, that it was, it was Jesus' provision for the people. And so my guess is as they distributed the abundance of what God had provided, there was probably lots and lots of thank yous going on to the disciples. Oh, Peter, you're such a good, giving man. James, where would we be without you, James? You have such a wonderful heart. John, oh, I'm going to name my firstborn after you. You guys are just so amazing. And see, I, I think of that battle waged within them There's a miracle here that had at its core the revelation of Jesus as Lord. It could have been used by these guys to advance their own reputations, their own desire for greatness, for wealth and for power and fame. That could have short-circuited the whole thing. Now, think through this with me. This leads me to ask myself and, and you this question. Is it possible that our desire for greatness, for wealth and power and fame, is it possible that that is shortcutting the work of God in our lives. When we send our kids out, when we nurture them up, you've got to be great. you got to work and try harder because you got to be great. When we send our kids out on an uninformed pursuit of quote-unquote greatness, is it possible that we're actually limiting what God can do in their lives? Andy Warhol once famously said, in the future, everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes, which is pretty amazing because it turns out he was right. This was all pre-internet, but with the advent of Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Snapchat and TikTok, at this point, I think it's more accurate to say that sometime in the future, it might be possible for everybody to be anonymous for 15 minutes. Everybody now wants to be famous. Everybody wants to make it big. For the generation that's coming behind us, heck, even for me, I fall prey to it. I, you know, it, it's all become about likes and followers and views. It's digital applause. I, we have a Facebook here at Mendham, right? We have a Facebook here at Mendham, and we've got over 1,000 likes. Interesting how I know that, isn't it? In fact, I could tell you exactly how many likes we have. What I can also tell you is when somebody dislikes our page because the number goes down and it hurts my soul. And I go in on Tuesday and we have our little staff meeting and I say, staff, 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 let's get in here. I noticed that our likes dropped. Is it me? Like, is it my preaching? Do I got to raise my game? Do I got to make it a little better? And we sit around and we talk about it and we always draw the same conclusion. No, it's Isaac. He... (laughs) I told him not to pick that song. The kid never listens to me. This whole thing is going to go in the can. Right? This is silly. But I do it. It's like greatness is getting measured by clicks and adjudicated by strangers. Is it possible that in order to enter the rhythm of the flow of God's abundance and care, we need to rethink our desire for greatness as measured by fame? John, not John the disciple of Jesus, but John the Baptist, taught his disciples something I think that we need to learn. And more importantly, we need to teach our disciples, at least our kids. Check it out. Mark details it this way it's regarding the fame of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here comes this interesting detail. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The whole... Did you ever catch that before? The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem, which was a fairly large city in the first century... All of them went out to see him. This means John's got like thousands and thousands and thousands of people, many of whom are traveling several days just to hear and see John. John is the man. John is hashtag first century famous. Lots of likes, many followers. Everybody knew him. Everybody had heard of him. Everybody followed him. Oh, they loved his photos. That TikTok dance he did one time with Peter? Oh, off the charts. He's the biggest thing in town. John was, by the way we measure things. Great. In fact, he's so famous. He he becomes such a big deal that I imagine maybe some of the temple attendants started to drop in town because everybody's going out to see John. And so people started wondering who he was. Remember, this is the first century in Jerusalem. There was a lot of fervor about the coming Messiah. And so here's what we read. Uh, This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And John, John the disciple records, John the Baptist said, he didn't fail to confess, but he confessed freely. Yeah, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. See, I like how Jesus' disciples rec- recorded this. He didn't fail to confess, but he freely confessed. In fact, they didn't even ask him if he was the Messiah. As soon as they, they showed up, he just goes, Yeah, yeah, I'm not the guy you're looking for. He freely gives up the recognition. See, if I was me, you know, I got a lot at risk here. There's thousands of people here. I'm the man. And so if they came out to me, I would know I can't claim to be the Messiah. I might do one of these. Well, I don't know. What do you think? What have you been told? Do you know what he's supposed to look like? Have you ever seen me and the Messiah at the same place at the same time? (laughs) Because, you know, I'm not really going to say that I am, but I wouldn't mind it if you thought about it a little bit. Uh, And so they go on. They, They said, well, then who are you? If you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? There was a lot of Old Testament prophecies that the Old Testament prophet Elijah or one like him was going to return as a precursor to the coming of the Messiah. And so, if I'm John, I'm going, maybe that's who I am. Maybe I missed it. Maybe my mother missed it. I should have been Elijah. Maybe maybe all of those things were written about me. I know I'm not the Messiah, but maybe I'm Elijah. He goes, nope, I'm not. Well, are you the prophet? He answered, uh, no. And finally, they're like, dude, who are you? I mean, you got this giant crowd. You got a really big congregation here. You, you've got like a Kardashian amount of followers here. Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What, what do you say about yourself? I love that. What do you say about yourself? Anybody ever get asked, what do you say? My mother used to ask me this all the time when I screwed up. What do you have to say for yourself? And and so this is John's big moment. For me, it just meant I'm sorry to try to get out of trouble. But for John, like, there's a lot at risk in this. Nobody had ever asked them this question before, at least so publicly. What do you have to say for yourself? This is John's shining moment to say who he is. And John replied, in fact, he quotes an Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He said, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John says, you know what I am? I'm just like a voice. I'm just like a sign. I'm really relatively nothing. All of this fame I have is is really just... It's for a purpose. It's, it's for a person, and it's to make him famous, not me. Now, now, the Pharisees who had been sent, they questioned him. Well, then why do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah and if you're not Elijah and if you're not a prophet? John goes, well, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the one who's the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. John's like, you don't understand. I know this looks good. But there's somebody coming after me. The one, uh, there's one that's coming after me. You guys think I'm great? Wait till you see who this is. You don't know of what you speak. I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy of tying the guy, un- untying the guy's shoes. I'm the warm-up act, man. I'm like the B-side of the 45. I go to a lot of Springsteen concerts, which, if you know me, isn't surprising. And every once in a while, uh, Bruce, we're on a first name basis. Every once in a while, um, (laughs) Bruce will uh, do a uh, a show. Most of the time, he doesn't have opening acts, right? But every once in a while, he'll do like a cause show, right? And so he'll he'll have opening acts. So one time I went and he had these opening acts. One of the opening acts was REM. Can you imagine REM is the opening act, right? And the worst part is everybody's chanting at REM Bruce, which sounds a lot like boo, by the way. And so it was getting a little out of control because really nobody wanted R.E.M., everybody wanted Bruce. Bruce had to come out and tell people to stop booing R.E.M. off the stage. John is going, you have no idea how unworthy I am for you to think something of me. And So here's how John, John the, the disciple, records it. The next day, the very next day, John declares, uh, that after John had declared that, the next day he does it again. He sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, look, all of you, all of the Judean countryside, all of you that have poured out of the town of Jerusalem, look, that's who I'm talking about. That's him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John says, there he is. He's the one I've been telling you about. He, not me. He, he, not me. John goes on. The next day, again, I like the wording. You get the sense of a day after day after day. John is trying to point towards Jesus. And away from himself day after day after day, John was there again with two of his disciples. John has disciples. Did you know that? Because John was a rabbi, and John had people who were following him, just like Jesus was a rabbi and had people following him. John was there with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look to his disciples, the Lamb of God. And here's what's interesting. Something happens that maybe I hadn't picked up on until I saw somebody discussing it this week. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus, which you know what that means. They unfollowed John. They stopped following John. John's crowd got smaller. His congregation shrunk. His likes dropped. He didn't call the boys together and go, you know, is it me? I mean, I can tell you it hurts me when the church Facebook page loses likes, right? But John doesn't think like I do. That's what's amazing about this. It doesn't bother him at all. He gets it. But do you want to know who it bothered? This is so fascinating. I never caught this until this week. It doesn't bother John at all. You know who it bothered? It bothered his disciples. You know why? Because they had a thing going. These guys were the the disciples of the coolest guy in town. Right? This is like hanging out with LeBron in L.A. They're getting into all the clubs. They're in the inner circle. People are picking up their tabs. In fact, here's what happened. An argument develops about this between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And so they come to John and say to him, Rabbi... That guy, that man over there, the one on the other side of the Jordan. See, Jesus is now on the other side of the Jordan, and they can see him. That guy over there, the one you testified about, look what he's doing. He's baptizing people. That's our thing. He stole your idea. Look what he's doing. John, he's baptizing people, and everyone is going to him. John, they're all going to him. you got to do something. we got to do something. He's got more followers, more likes, more views. He's more famous than you are. He's more popular. You know what that means? That means his disciples are more popular. Nobody's picking up my tab anymore. All the cool people in Jerusalem are at his lunch table now. John! Do something. And it's to that complaint and that mindset, and that's our mindset, our desire for fame and renown and glory and greatness and mattering, that John is this incredible line, one you and I need to remember, one we probably need to teach to our kids. To this, John replied, guys, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven, See, here's what he understands. John goes, look, all this fame, all the attention, all this stuff, all everything we've gotten, where do you guys think it came from? You didn't do anything. It all came from God. All the, any glory we had wasn't ours. It was all His. So when I, when, I, when I had it, I knew it wasn't mine. I wasn't trying to hold on to it. It wasn't about me. It was about Him. He says you yourselves can testify that I said I told you I'm not the Messiah I'm sent ahead of him and he says this he goes look he must become greater and I must become less church he must become greater and we must become less John says I gotta become less which means to his followers that you're gonna become less and that's gotta be okay John says, look, it is with me. It should be with you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. All of this, your stuff, your fame, your job, your name, all of it was placed into your hands, not so you could make a name for yourself, not so everybody would tell you how great you are, but so that you could use it, the stuff, the platform, the relationships, to tell people how great he is. John says, I learned a lesson. We We all need to. Don't use his stuff to make your name great. And I have that conversation. I just need to tell you, I've told you this before, I have this conversation every week driving to church because every week I'm driving here and I'm going, you know what, Lord, this sermon's not very good. I know some of you are thinking that right now. <laughs> and as I'm driving, he's, he says, why are you worried about what everybody, you're not worried that I don't think it's good. You're worried that others might not think it's good. And then we have a little discussion about how I try to rob glory from him. And then he reminds me that you're not to make a name for yourself in my church. Just like we're not to make names for ourselves with his stuff. You might well say, okay, fine, fine. That's a great story. I get it, right? Who, but I mean, who wouldn't be willing to give up some greatness For Jesus, I would lower my profile a bit. I would turn the shine down on my star a little bit so that Jesus's would burn a little brighter. Look, it's Jesus. Everybody would do that. I would do it. I'd step off the dais. For Jesus, I get the point. Here's the point. I I understand to be great, what I have to do is yield a little bit, a little of my fame, my power, my reputation, my likes, my followers. I need to yield a little to share the glory with Jesus, share the greatness with him. Being great means you can be great, you just got to remember to give Jesus' his due, right? Wrong. Because just a short time after these moments, with a lot of the disciples now leaving John and attaching themselves to Jesus, gets whose disciples start to get a little full of themselves. Tabs start getting picked up at the restaurants. Everybody starts going, hey, I saw you hanging around with that rabbi, Jesus. Can I buy you a drink? All of a sudden, these guys start to pick up a little fame because Jesus is the man. He's got the fame, and most of them have unfriended John and are following Jesus. In fact, he's surrounded by thousands, just like John used to be. And, and, and Mark tells us that, that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, followed by these throngs and crowds. And Jesus pauses. Here's how Mark Mark writes the story. And he says again, meaning that John, or excuse me, meaning that Jesus has said this to them before. He's tried to tell them this before. Again, he took the 12 aside. Let me, come on, I know there's a thousand people here. Come here, come here I need you to hear something. And he told them that what was going to happen to him. He goes, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I've told you this before. And the Son of Man is going to be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they're going to condemn him. He's talking about himself. They're going to condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he'll rise. Jesus says, again, I'm going to tell you this one more time. I'm going to be condemned, mocked, spit on, beaten, and killed. Remember that, guys. Amidst all the screams and the fanfare and the whooping and the hollering, remember that, guys. I love the next word. Here's the next word in the story. Then. You know what then means? Right then, right after Jesus told them he was going to be mocked, beaten, spit on, flogged, right then, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him teacher, they said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I'm going to impute good motive here, and, and maybe Jesus did too. I love these guys. Oh, they're concerned about me. They heard that. I've told them it many times. They're starting to get it, and so they're going to ask me to not let this happen. They know I've raised people from the dead. They know i perform performed miracles, blind see, all the rest. These guys, they don't want this to happen to me. Isn't it wonderful they're going to ask that I not allow it to happen? And so Jesus looks at them, maybe expectantly. He goes, guys, what is it that you want me to do for you? And he asked, and they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, after the flogging and the beating and the spitting and all that, right after that, would it be okay... If the two of us, you know, either side, right, left, it doesn't matter. But would you mind if we, we took those positions there? In fact, this is even better. Matthew tells the story. He adds a little detail to this. Check this out because these guys were probably a little intimidated. They don't really want Jesus. You know, they're afraid of what Jesus might think of them. So they decide to put somebody else out front. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of them. They get their mommy to do it. They got their mother to do it. This is like when my kids are, could you call my teacher? They get their mom to come and ask, what is it you want? He asked, she said, grant that one of these, my boys, that they could sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What is it they want? You know what they want? They want the same thing John's disciples wanted. I want to be great. They wanted what Jesus... And look, they were, they were okay. Jesus, you can sit in the middle chair, right? Like, you know, we, we get it. We're not asking for that. I don't think we're asking for much. We're going to let you go first. But then, if it's okay, I, we'd like to be great. We want to be great too. I love how Jesus answers them. He looks at them and goes, you don't know what you're asking, he said. I think there's that on of you... You have no idea what you're asking right now. You have no idea what you're even talking about. You don't know what you're signing up for. He says to them, can you drink the cup I drink or or could you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, guys, this is about to get really ugly. I just explained to you what's going to happen. I am about to have the wrath of God for the sins of all of mankind poured out on me. That's the cup I'm about to drink. That's what's about to go down here. Do you guys think you could handle that? We can, they declared. And as you all know, they couldn't. And later on when things went down, they were nowhere to be found, hiding off in different areas. I love the next line. It's not just the James and John issue because when the 10, the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. What do you think they're indignant about? Oh, James and John, I can't believe that you would ask Jesus such a question right after he said what would happen. Is that why they're indignant? No. They're indignant because they didn't think about it first. These guys just jumped us in the line. Now they're ticked. They want to be great too. See, it's not just me. And so Jesus calls them together and he says, look, You know, he says, there are those that are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, and they lord it over them. And they're high officials. They exercise authority over them. To which you would imagine these guys go, yeah, of course we know that. That's why we want to sit on your left and the right. We get it. We know how it operates. We'd like to be great just like they are. And then I would say this to every one of us who does want to be great. I mean, I do want to be great. I want my kids to be great. I want your kids to be great. Jesus says something so ridiculous. He goes, you know how it works here? Not so with you. Not so with you. Not so with you. You're going to be different. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. What? see, that's why I want to be great. Like, I want to have a servant, Jesus. You must have misunderstood the conversation, but he didn't because he doubles down on it, and he goes, and whoever wants to be first must be slave. You know, that's the kind of servant that doesn't even get paid. Uh, Whoever wants to be first has got to absolutely be the last, the last, the last of all. And for all of us that want to be great, I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear as if Jesus was saying it to you. And I want you to teach it to your kids. Listen now. For everybody that wants to be great. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I can imagine them going, Well, Jesus, we already told you we loved you. I mean, we're prepared to drink the cup you're going to drink, Jesus. We're willing to give up some of our fame and position for you. We'll take this. We told you you can have the first seat. We'd be willing to let the sun, the shine on our star dim a little bit so yours could rise. We'd give all of that up for you, Jesus. To which I think Jesus might say, I'm not asking you to give any of it up for me. I'm asking you to give it up for one another. That's what it means to be great. Well, they continue on in the walk. And the people, you know, the crowds, they continue to gather. We're going to celebrate what happens next on Palm Sunday in a few weeks, but as they near Jerusalem, the crowd is in a fever pitch. Everybody gathered around, they're throwing coats down, and palm trees are waving, and people are shouting at them, Hosanna, Hosanna, as blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I could just see like Peter and James and John going, that's right, baby right, as they roll in, and the crowds start to get to Him again, and the desire for greatness, it doesn't go away easy, and Jesus says, okay, go go on ahead and get a room for, for dinner tonight, and they get together, what we call the last supper, they sit around a Passover table, and as they sit for the last supper, do you know what happens? A big argument ensues with one another over which one of them is the greatest, because they, I mean, they really want to be great. And I'm sure Jesus hears it. At, at this point, He knows His time is short. He knows that this pursuit of worldly greatness, fame and wealth and renown and authority, it has the ability to derail the work of God in those 12 men. And that's going to matter. Just as it could have derailed the work Uh, of the 12 men with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus knows at this point another teaching isn't going to suffice. They haven't gotten it. The desire to be great is too strong within them and there's too much at risk. Here's how John recorded what happens. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His authority. Jesus already is the man. Jesus is confident of His position. He understands that He's come from God and He's returning to God, so He got up from the meal. He took off his outer coat, and at this point, you've got to be thinking, uh-oh, now he's ticked. He's had enough. He took off his outer clothing, and he, he disciplined them. He, he chided them. He rebuked them. He, he flipped the table over on them. He wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And my guess, it was a mic drop moment. My guess is there was a lot of stunned, very awkward, embarrassed silence because they were so focused on arguing their own greatness. It hadn't even occurred to them to wash their own sandal wearing, dirt covered feet. You see, in that, in that, in that culture, the foot washer was the servant of everybody. He was the slave of all. This was an embarrassing, fame diminishing role. If there was no servant available in the room, it should have been they who were washing Jesus' feet. You get a sense of how uncomfortable this must have been for them. And by the way, do you know how long it takes to wash 12 feet? It's not like two minutes. This this awkward feeling goes on for a while. We get a sense for it when he gets to, to Peter. He comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In fact, he would go on to protest. He goes, you're never washing my feet. And Jesus replied. He said, look, I know you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And so, 2,000 years later, can I ask you a question? Do you understand? Do you understand? It was Mark who said the disciples needed to learn the lesson of the loaves, what Jesus had done, what he could do. Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it, but then... He doesn't hold on to it, he he gives it, and he gives it to people like you, and people like me. And we have choices to make with what we've been given. Are we gonna gonna understand like John the Baptist that, that everything that we've been given has come from heaven? We're not to use it to build a brand, to make a name for ourselves. Will we take the miracle of everything we've been given and leverage it for our own gain and our own fame? Or will we, and here's the real risk not even or, will we let this relentless pursuit of greatness derail the work of God in our lives? Or will we learn? Will you learn? And will you teach our kids that, yeah, we, I want you to be great? We want you to be great, but if you really want to be great, do you know what you have to do? You've got to drop this relentless pursuit for fame and glory and authority and power. It's going to stop the flow of God's work in your life, and instead, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And serve. Everybody can't be rich. Everybody can't be powerful. Everybody can be great.